Welcome to People's Church Podcast. Uh, Welcome to week four of 40 Days in the Word. A quick recap over the past three weeks. Week one, we discussed the validity of the Bible and why you can trust it. It's scientifically, historically, and prophetically sound. You can fully trust it as your source uh, of authority and truth. Week two, we discussed how the Bible changes us, how it transforms us. That when we accept it as the authority in our lives and we act on what it says, it has the power to give us fresh new life. And last week, we focused on a specific word that was illumination. The word of God ignites our mind and brings enlightenment and understanding through the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. That if a person is not a Christian, they do not have the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the Bible is just a bunch of words on on the pages that tell stories, which are often very confusing. The truth of, of the Bible is hidden from them because they are spiritually blind. The Holy Spirit provides new spiritual eyes, ears, and intuition. Now this morning, we're going to get, as our youth pastor Ethan would say, because he's such a cowboy, we're going to get to the meat and potatoes of it. I'm going to show you how to study a Bible passage. I'm pretty excited about this. We're going to walk through the process and see what truths we can harvest as we move through the layers together. The secret of studying the Bible is learning how to ask the right questions. The more questions you throw at a particular text of the Bible, the more you're going to get out of it. And as we discussed in the previous weeks, the Bible is a supernatural book. You can read the same passage over and over, and you'll never get to the bottom of it. God will be able to keep revealing new things to you for your entire life. You just have to hit it with questions from all angles. It's pretty neat. It's sort of like the behind the scenes option you have when you buy a movie. Any of you guys ever watched the behind the scenes? Any of you ever spent more time watching the behind the scenes than the actual movie itself? It's because there's significantly more time and material available than the actual movie itself. So if you were to watch something like The Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or any of the Marvel movies, it's it's pretty darn cool, pretty neat to see how they do everything. And this is what asking the right questions does when studying a Bible passage. You get the behind the scenes treatment. You guys have probably seen those pictures, those encouragement pictures in schools and stuff that shows like the iceberg and you just see the top, but then you get to see the vast bottom of it under the surface of the water. It's way bigger than what you see above, right? You start to explore the vastly larger portion beneath the the surface. So if you take a look at your outline, you'll notice there are four words. Observation, interpretation, correlation, and application. These are the four things you will practice when you're going to sit down and look at a passage of scripture to study it for yourself. And let me explain what these mean, and then we'll go back and look at them in depth. The first step in any Bible study is observation. The question you ask is, what does it say? Simple as that. You look at the Bible verse or the story or the text or the passage, and you simply observe it. 
You write down what you observe. It's whatever you're seeing. You're not trying to interpret it. You're not trying to figure out the meaning of it. It's just, what does it say? And you write it down. Now, I've heard Pastor Nelson say this many times over the years. The difference between Bible reading and Bible study is you use a pencil or a pen or you type it on your computer. If you're not making notes, then you're not actually studying the Bible, you're just reading it. You have to write or record something in order to study. How many of you guys ever did a book report when you were in school? Oh, I heard some groans. Painful memories, I'm sorry to to stir those up. (laughs) Wasn't that just one of your most favorite activities in the whole world? No. But what did you do, though? You wrote it down, right? You summarized whatever the story was or whatever the book was, and you wrote it down. You wrote down the parts that you were going to report on. I'm not trying to make Bible study sound like a book report. It's obviously much more than that. So in observation, you simply look at the text and go, what does it say? And you write it down. It says this, it says this, it says this. That's the first step. The second step in studying a passage is interpretation. This is where you ask the question, what does it mean? So what does it say, and now what does it mean? Well, doesn't the Bible mean what it says? Not necessarily. The Bible means what it means. Because in every communication, in every language, in every culture, we often use metaphors. We use analogies. We use phrases that literally don't mean what they mean. For instance, if I sent you a text that said, you've been pulling my leg. A thousand years from today, somebody finds that text in another language or whatever, somewhere online, and it says, look, this Brent guy said he was getting his leg pulled. If they take that literally, they might think you were grabbing onto my foot and pulling my leg. But obviously we know that's not what it means. It means you're kidding me or you're teasing me. How can you understand something that the Bible means, or sorry, how you can understand it is by looking at the context around it. For instance, if I say the word pin, P-I-N, pin, what does that word mean to you? You might think rolling pin, bowling pin, a clothes pin, a safety pin, put a pin in that on your phone, pin your location. So you can't just say of a word, it means this. No, it doesn't necessarily mean that. It means what it means within the context. If I'm talking about wrestling, for example, what does pin mean? You pin your opponent down. So you have to look at the verses around it. So, what does it say? What does it mean? Then I ask the third question in Bible study, which is correlation. And the question is, what other verses explain it? I ask myself, is there anything else in the Bible that would help me to understand what I'm reading right now? It's called correlation. You correlate verses. You compare and you correlate. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. You use the Bible to explain the Bible. One of the principles of interpretation is you interpret an unclear passage in light of a clear one. 
In other words, if you read something in the Bible that doesn't really make sense, you don't know what it means, you look for something else in the Bible that does make sense to explain it. You always use what's clear to explain what is unclear. If you don't get that you're going to go out, if you don't understand this, you're going to go out and form some kind of cult. You're going to get some weird idea where you say, I think it means this, when it doesn't mean that at all. There are things that the Bible means and there are things that it definitely doesn't mean. The way you know that is by looking at the, what the whole Bible says. So the fourth question I ask myself in Bible study application, or is application, what will I do about it? What does it say? What does it mean? What other verses explain it? And what will I do about it? No matter what you're going to study, these are the four questions you need to ask in order to dig a little bit deeper to get below the surface. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at a fairly straightforward Bible passage this morning, and we're going to ask these four questions together as we go. I think you'll see what I mean. As this passage doesn't really seem like you could do much with it, but it's the word of God. So let's begin. Um, before we do, let me give you a little background, um, because as I said earlier, context is important. So we're going to be reading a letter from the Apostle Paul, and he's writing a letter from Rome. He was in Rome. Paul is the apostle who wrote most of the New Testament. He was imprisoned in Rome for his missionary work at the time, and he's due to appear before Caesar. He's hoping one day to be released to go back and visit all the churches that he started, but he's not able to do this right now, so... He's writing letters to his churches instead. One of the letters that he wrote, he wrote to the church that he started in a city called Philippi, which is a city that's in Greece. So Paul, he's in Italy, in Rome, and he's writing to a church in Greece. Because he's writing to the people in Philippi, it's called the letter to the Philippians. If he'd written it to us, it would be called First and Second Albertans. And he would have started it with, may God the Father, through his son Jesus Christ, bless the oil patch. So the book of Galatians means that the people who lived in the city of Galatia, it's a letter to them. The book of Corinthians is written to the people who lived in the Greek city of Corinth. These were real cities like Rome. The book of Romans obviously is written to the people who lived in Rome. So he's writing in this context, to the Philippians. The church there had taken up a love offering for him and sent it to him, and he's now writing back. The book of Philippians is actually basically a thank you note. It's a thank you note, which he's writing to the people saying, thank you guys for sending this to me. You knew I was in prison. Thank you. So let's read it together. It's Philippians chapter two, verses 19 through 30. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself 
because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not, only, not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help that you yourselves could not give me. So what do you guys think? Can we get something out of this? Pretty straightforward, right? It's a thank you note where Paul thanks the Philippians and speaks highly of two fellas, Timothy and, man, I always have trouble with this. It's such an odd name to me. Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus, there we go, nailed it. It's almost like, okay, God, why is this passage even in the Bible? Well, let's walk through the questions that we laid out out earlier in order as we go through the passage. First, I observe, right? Just write down what I see, that Paul intended to send two men to the church of Philippi. It's just an observation. There's nothing fancy about it, nothing spiritual. That's just what I see. In verse 19, he says, I hope to send you Timothy. There's one of the guys, and in verse 25, he says, I think it's necessary to send Epaphroditus back to you. He actually came from the church of Philippi. I'm going to send him back home. So he says, I'm going to send these two guys to you, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Are we tracking together so far? You're with me? All right, we're just observing. The second thing I observe is that Paul endorsed them as role models who deserve honor. In verse 20, Paul says about Timothy, I have no one else like him. That is the greatest endorsement you could ever receive as a Christian. Paul is the greatest Christian who's ever lived next to Jesus Christ, our Lord himself. And Paul says, I've got nobody in the world like this guy, Timothy. If Paul said that about you, that means you're at the top of the heap. You're the very best Christian that he knows. If Paul said that about you, it would be one of the greatest possible compliments you could ever receive for your faith. So this is not a tiny thing. Then about Epaphroditus, he says in verse 29, welcome him and honor men like him. Honor men like him. So he's saying whatever these guys are doing, they're unusual, they're unique, and they are worthy of honor. Notice in both of these verses about Timothy and Epaphroditus, they say, it says, like him. If you you have a pen in your outline, I want you to circle like him in that passage. Anytime you see a phrase used twice in scripture, it means God is telling you something. 
I have nobody else like him. Honor men like him. That naturally makes me ask the third observation question. What does it mean to be like these men? What are they like? Why are they so special? Why are they worthy of honor? Why do they deserve to be praised? What are these guys actually doing in their lives that make them so great? So I would ask that question. Then I would read through the passage again and I find that Paul says five things about these two guys. In verse 20 and 21, he says about Timothy, he takes a genuine interest in you. In verse 22, he says about Timothy, he has proved himself. Then in verse 25, he says about Epaphroditus, he's my brother, my fellow worker, and my fellow soldier. In verse 26, he says, he longs for all of you, and he is distressed. Again, Epaphroditus. And in verse 27 through 30, he says, he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life. So do you see what I've done? All I've done is I've read it and wrote it down, wrote down what I saw. Paul's talking about two guys. He's going to send them back to Philippi. He endorses them as role models. And he says we ought to honor them because of these five characteristics that they have going on in their lives. That's, that's the observation. Now we get to interpretation. What does it mean? Again, on the surface, this passage may seem like a minor one but we just listed five examples of what it means to be a godly man. And is that not the goal for every Christian, to become more godly? So let's look at the first example. In verse 21, I have no one like him. He takes a genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone looks out for his own interests. Another translation says, Timothy genuinely cares for you. Others only care about themselves. So the first characteristic of a godly man is a godly man is caring. A godly man is caring. A godly man is compassionate, he's caring, he's unselfish. He thinks about others. He's not just thinking about himself. Now how countercultural is this? Everything in our society tells us, and especially our children, you're number one. It's all about you. Look after yourself first. You have to self-care. I can't, I've seen many advertisements on TV over the years that say the exact same thing, and it just drives me nuts. It says, because you deserve it. No. A godly man cares about others, not just himself. It's okay to care about yourself, but also care about others. Now, as we go, I'm, this morning I'm specifically talking to men because this passage just happens to be focused on two men. But ladies, these principles apply to you as well. Now, if you're a single lady, this actually could be helpful for you if you're looking for a godly man. If it works out for you, you can thank me later. <laughs> but we're going to go through it. Let's have a look at what is the opposite of a godly man, a selfish man. So here's some questions that you can ask to help identify a selfish man before it's too late. 
Now, have some grace because as men, none of us are perfect, right? We're all working towards this becoming more godly. But here's some questions you can ask yourself. If he gets like 90% on this, then you probably want to ditch him and go find a better man. You think I'm joking. (laughs) Does he only talk about himself? Does he ever open the door for you? Has he ever brought you a, a meal because he knew you were too busy to eat and he sensed that you didn't, he sensed it, you didn't have to tell him? Does he ever go out of his way to make sure you feel safe? Does he ever ask for your opinion on anything? Will he cancel his plans if you're sick so he can take care of you? That's the one I'm terrible at. It's hunting season. <laughs> I've got some work to do. Is he obsessed with his appearance? Will he do something that he doesn't like to do just to be able to spend more time with you? Does he pick up his messes or does he expect you to pick them up? Wives, this is your chance right now to playfully elbow your husband in the ribs. Ask yourself those questions, ladies. So a godly man is caring. The second thing we learn about Timothy is Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. In the God's Word translation, it says, you know what kind of person Timothy proved to be. The word proved. It means tested. It means verified. It means this guy checks out. He's been determined to be reliable. He's Toyota tough. I can't say Ram tough because I drive a Corolla. (laughs) Manly. This guy is dependable. This guy is reliable. This guy is proven faithful. The number of people who are dependable, who don't flip-flop or squish, people who keep their word, who do what they say, who keep their promises even when it hurts them, is unusual. And I'm not even talking about politicians. What is needed today are men who are consistent. And that's our second characteristic of a godly man. A godly man is consistent. A godly man is caring, a godly man is consistent. You know the difference between conviction and opinion? An opinion is something that you'll argue about but a conviction is something you'll die for. Do you have any conviction in your life? Are you willing to die for anything? Until you know and have even made a list, I would die for this, I would die for this, I would die for this, then you're not really living, you're just existing. God is looking for consistent men. They're committed to God's standard and they're consistent in their values. They don't act one way with one group of people and then another way with a different group of people. They don't allow their feelings to control them. They don't throw temper tantrums or pout like a three-year-old. My son, I guess he's, he's not three, he's four now. But when he gets really angry, he scrunches up his face like this 
And I know it's not really cute on me, but you should see him when he does it. It's super cute. And it's so hard to take him seriously because he's so angry, but he's so cute. It's cute on a four-year-old, not a grown man. The next characteristic, a godly man is cooperative. Paul says about Epaphroditus, he's my brother, he's my fellow worker, he's my fellow soldier. Why? Because the Christian life is a family, it's a fellowship, and it's a fight. The church is a family. We're related. We belong to each other. Did you know that the phrase brother and sister is used about 133 times in the Bible to refer to Christians? And not only are we a family, we're a fellowship. We're fellow workers. That means we have the same task, the same mission, the same great commission. We're to work together. We're to serve together. We're fellow workers. Not only that, we're co-laborers in arms. We're comrades in arms. We're fellow soldiers. Because we have the same battle and we have the same enemy, Satan. So we support each other, we encourage each other, we pray for one another. That's why we have small groups, because we're in this fight together and we're fighting for each other. I've actually heard some people say things like, I don't need anyone else. I don't need a church. I can do my own thing and be a Christian. Oh, well, I don't know what kind of Christian you are, but you certainly aren't a godly one. Because the truth is, you need us, and we need you. One other note to consider is a godly man isn't difficult to be around. A godly man will put down his ego and be willing to compromise short of committing sin on certain things in order to get the work done that God is leading him in. Now, I, I noticed this as I was going through. If you haven't noticed already on your outline, the correlating verses which, with uh, each of these godly man characteristics are above each point, not below. So just keep that in mind as we go. I just wanted to test you, see if you're awake this morning. The fourth characteristic, a godly man is considerate. Epaphroditus was concerned about the fact that the Philippians were concerned about him. He was distressed that the fact that he was sick and almost died had distressed them. He wasn't walking around going, did you hear? I almost died. I don't know if you know this, but almost died. Hey, guess what? Almost died. No, he was concerned about how his near-death experience affected other people. What kind of guy is this? Verse 26 says, for he longs for all, all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. A considerate man cares about other people's feelings. Now don't go getting all codependent on me. If you don't know what that means, the term codependent means you allow other people's feelings to control how you act. Don't do that but it's important to be considerate of other people's feelings. I've heard some people say, I have no filter. 
I just say whatever's on my mind, and if you're offended, that's your problem. I'm always the authentic me. No, you're not. You're just rude. (laughs) Any tool can say whatever he thinks. A real man keeps his mouth shut when he knows he should. Don't be proud of having no filter. That's what toddlers do. A godly man is considerate of others. Lastly, a godly man is courageous. By the way, I feel like I should, I should uh, add a little disclaimer onto this. I don't have any of these characteristics down perfect. Okay? A godly man is courageous. Epaphroditus risked his life to reach Paul and bring him, the, bring him his gift from the Philippians. Why? Because he recognized that, that he had two parties counting on him, the Philippians and Paul. So he kept the objective in the forefront of his mind. It's hard to let fear sink in when you're being driven by an objective, especially one that you've preemptively decided that you're willing to die for to accomplish it. It's hard for fear to sink in. When's the last time you took a risk on something important? You've probably taken lots of risks in the past on things that weren't that important. Many of you have taken risks doing some dangerous sport or adrenaline junkie type activity. Maybe you've taken a risk on a big business deal. But when's the last time you did it for your faith? In your family? with your friends, at work? Are you willing to risk looking like a loser or a Bible thumper? Are you willing to be courageous and stand up for what's right, even when it's the unpopular thing to do? What if you lose your friend over it? What if you lose a promotion over it? Or what if your family disowns you? That's tough. Would you be willing to be courageous, though, and stand up for your faith? Men of God, if you're willing to hear it from me, I implore you, stop being passive. We need you. Our women and children need you in the fight. Our church needs you. Get down on your knees and start praying. Then get up and act with courage. Be risk takers. Dig deep and live with authentic conviction. Who do you think that the enemy and this world are targeting the most? The most vulnerable? Our children, our women? With technology like smartphones and social media and with all the social pressures, if we as men don't step up and get involved in the fight, they don't stand a chance. Stop leaving it to everyone else. Stand up for what's good and right and oppose what what is wrong and evil. Take your role as a man seriously. We need you. With God leading you, you will be able to find the courage you may think that you don't have. God can make you courageous. Just let him do it.
So these five characteristics describe a godly man, which we discovered when we asked the question, what does this passage mean? The next question, what other verses explain it? What other verses explain it? And it's super cool in my opinion because there are countless examples in the Bible where one verse is referring to a different verse which refers to another verse, which refers to this verse, which shines more light on it, which brings context and clarity. So in this case, I would ask, is there anything else in the Bible about these two guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus? And the answer is, oh yeah. Is there ever more stuff about these two guys? Timothy has two complete books in the Bible which are two more letters that Paul wrote personally to him. We have 1 Timothy and we have 2 Timothy. You could go through these and read through these two books to find out a whole lot more about this guy. And remember, Paul said there is no one else like him. Then Epaphroditus, he's mentioned one other time later in actually this book, the book of Philippians in chapter four, and we discover why the church sent him. So you find more about these two guys. But another thing you might do is, is find out where else in the Bible it talks about these five characteristics of a godly man. Caring, consistency, cooperating, considerate, courageous. Where else in the Bible does it talk about this stuff? To do this, you can use what is called a concordance. Now this Bible in, particu in particular is a study Bible. So it's got some extra features in it and one of them is a concordance in the back of the book and it literally has all kinds of words and you look at the word and it'll tell you exactly what verses and what books contain that word and then you can turn to it and read about it. So you could read up on these five characteristics of a godly man. It's pretty cool. Now that's just the study Bible there. There's also, that, and, and that doesn't contain everything. There's also one called an exhaustive concordance, okay? That would be a completely separate book because it would be so big. But it, it will contain every single word in the Bible and where to find them. Could you imagine being responsible for coming up with that? Every word, including the word the. You know what, I'm just gonna stand really still. I've got like five minutes left. Okay, thanks, Jerry. I appreciate it, buddy. The word the, you know, in case you wanted to study up on the word the. I also checked the app store. If you're more of like a techie, like that guy from the video, they have concordances available there as well. So you can just type, type the word in. I wonder where else in the Bible it talks about this specific word. There's also great websites out there like BibleGateway.com. I use that one all the time. Love it. And there's, there's lots. If you're wanting to do any Bible correlation, you need a concordance. They're an awesome tool that will help you gain context and look at certain words and phrases from different angles and perspectives. So you've read a passage and you've asked yourself the questions. What does it say? What does it mean? What other verses explain it? And lastly, you need to ask yourself, what will I do about it? How will I apply what I've read? You guys remember last week's memory verse, James 1.22? Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. I can see some mouths moving out there. Good job.
The last three Wednesday night table group studies, we've already discussed three ways that you can practice application. We discussed the pronounce it method. It's where you fluctuate one word at a time. We discussed the picture it method, where you imagine yourself being at the scene that you're reading about and looking through the eyes of each character in the Bible scenario. And this past Wednesday, we discussed the acrostic, this is a weird one, but it works, thank you, space pets, which is nine probing questions to ask about any text. And this is what they are. Is there a sin to confess? Is there a promise to claim? Is there an attitude to change? Is there a command to obey? Is there an example to follow? Is there a prayer to pray in this verse? Is there an error to avoid? Is there a truth to believe? And is there something I can thank God for? I would space pets the heck out of this passage. Is there a sin to confess? Let's, let's walk through it. Is there a sin to confess? Maybe. Is there a promise to claim? No, not really. Is there an attitude to change? Yes. Is there a command to obey? Yes. Honor men like these two. That's the command. Honor men like these two. Is there an example to follow? Definitely. There are five examples to follow. Is there a prayer to pray in this verse? How about, you can make your own prayer out of it. Lord, help me to be more like these two men. Is there an error to avoid? Yes, don't look to your own, own affairs only. Look, at, look out for other people. Is there a truth to believe? Well, it's the Bible, so. Is there something I can thank God for? Well, who do I have in my life that exemplifies these two men? That's how you can put it into practice. I'm gonna invite the band to come up we're going to close. But here's something that you can do today. You can find the godly men in your life and you can honor them. Reach out to them. Tell them the impact that they've had on your life. Ask God to make you more like the example that they've been for you. Then you might look at which of the five qualities of a godly man that you're the weakest at. Write down which one you're going to work on. It's interesting. Interesting. This message is desperately needed in today's day and age. Our culture, our children are growing up looking up to people like celebrities for examples of how to live. Our culture idolizes that lifestyle. It's shallow, it's self centered, it's ungodly. It pits people against each other. It leads to emptiness and ultimately destruction. We need more godly men. And we need to make a point to honor the godly men in our lives. This is how we can bring change to this world and how the gospel of Jesus Christ can be spread more effectively. And you thought that this passage had nothing to say. Let's stand together. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. If you're here this morning, you've never received Jesus Christ to be your personal Lord and Savior, and you'd like to make that commitment today, you'd like to receive his free gift 
of forgiveness and salvation. And it's as simple as praying along quietly in your heart. You can use these words that I'm about to say. Say, Lord Jesus, I'm tired of living life on my own. I've been the same way for far too long and just struggling, struggling, struggling in these five characteristics. Lord, I want to learn how to be a godly man and so I know that the first step is to receive you, Jesus, into my heart as my personal Lord and Savior. By faith, Lord, I'm choosing to believe that you died for my sins on the cross but that you rose again. And now in receiving you, I now have eternal life forever with you in heaven. I thank you for this. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now for the rest of us, Lord, help us to be doers of the word. Lord, give us wisdom as we navigate and we ask questions and we probe your word. Help us to see it for what it really is. Help us to look at it like the picture of the iceberg. On the surface, it might look small. But when we follow the right steps, we see that there's just a vast, never-ending pool of life-changing knowledge. But God, we have to be willing to put it into practice. That's the bottom line. So continue to give us your wisdom as we learn more about your word and how to navigate it in the following weeks. And Lord, help us to be godly men, those of us who are men here. And same for the women. Help them to be godly women. Our world needs us. We just have to step up and do things your way. Walk in obedience. So we thank you that you're good to us always. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you find this program helpful or would like to learn more, please give us a call 780-539-0572 or email mail at peopleschurchgp.com.